Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. It's the story that hasn't gone away. There's something new about it every single day, and that is the spread of COVID-19, the coronavirus. We now have the first possible instance of community exposure of the COVID-19 in Northern California. A woman has been infected, and she didn't travel to the heart of the outbreak in China or have contact with anyone that had the virus. It's concerning because it could be a sign that it's spreading within the community, and it's tough to track who might have had contact with this woman. President Trump has set up a COVID-19 task force. It's being led by Vice President Mike Pence to handle the federal response. But it seems that the coronavirus will just continue to spread. For more on what we know about this latest case and other details, we speak to Erin Alday. She's a health writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. This woman we know was in her community for some time not feeling well. So I think a few days um, is the word we're getting. She had flu-like symptoms and took herself to a local hospital in the city of Vacaville in Solano County. And this was just a small local hospital. She kind of walked in. They uh, admitted her. They treated her. She was intubated and put on a ventilator when her condition suddenly worsened. And at that point, she was transferred to another hospital facility, UC Davis Medical Center, where she was in very serious condition. And the doctors there sort of immediately were concerned that she had this very serious illness and that they weren't able to find the source of illness, which made them think that this could be coronavirus, even though she didn't have any of the other criteria. So the point is that she was in her community and treated at the small hospital for several days, maybe a week before anybody knew or suspected that she could have coronavirus. I know health workers are obviously always taking care of themselves, wearing the proper protection, masks, whatever they need to. But if they weren't suspecting that it could have been coronavirus at first, they did put her on a ventilator and all that. Is it possible that those health workers could have also been exposed to this? Yeah, for sure. That's definitely a concern at this point. And in fact, healthcare workers at that hospital have been sent home and are self-quarantining for presumably for the incubation period. They haven't said how long, but they are at home and they're monitoring themselves for symptoms. Because, yeah, I mean, people do take standard care. There is standard precautions you take, but there is a whole level up from that that people are taking with coronavirus patients. And presumably these healthcare workers would not have been doing that if they had no reason to think this person had the virus. There was also a lot of questions about the timeline that happened with this. The patient arrived at UC Davis on Wednesday, February 19th. It wasn't until four days later on Sunday, February 23rd, that they were tested for coronavirus. And then the results came back on Wednesday, the 26th. What happened? Why did they wait so long to test this person? Basically, the wait time was because the CDC has, since the start of this, had very strict protocols on who gets tested. And that was basically you had to have not only symptoms, but have either recently traveled to China or had a known exposure to somebody who had already been diagnosed with the coronavirus. So if you didn't meet those criteria, then they just weren't going to test you. And I think there was some sort of flexibility in there. If you had maybe been in contact with somebody who had recently traveled to China, I think that they could have conversations. But in this case, this woman met 
no criteria at all. There was just nothing about her to make them think coronavirus, even though her doctors were concerned. The question is what made them finally be convinced to test her. And I think that was probably just because they knew this woman had a viral infection and nothing was turning up positive. So it turned out that they needed to test. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the big questions here is have we reached a point now where those protocols don't work anymore? If this thing is in the community, then we probably should be testing more people based on other criteria besides just a travel history and exposure to known cases. Right now, the hunt is on, I guess, for whoever the patient zero would be. And it's tough. I mean, especially if this patient right now is on a ventilator, you know, who knows how bad her condition really is. But they have to trace her steps back to see where she possibly contracted it. And that's tough, but it's also important because you need to know the trajectory of how the virus is moving. Yeah, I mean, it's both how it's, you need to know where she might have been exposed, so they need to trace her whereabouts, but also who she may have then interacted with. So it's sort of, you know, on both ends of the spectrum, they need to really figure that out. But you're right, she's on a ventilator, so I imagine that will complicate that process. California Governor Gavin Newsom spoke about what the state is doing. He said they're working with the Center for Disease Control, obviously, but he said also said that they're monitoring like some 8,000 people possibly but we only have about 200 or so test kits in the state. That doesn't necessarily point to a big state of readiness, it seems like. I mean, yes and no. I will say when they say they're monitoring 8,000, I think it's 8,400 or something like that. Those are people who every single person who has returned to California from China in, since February 2nd is asked to self-quarantine for two weeks. So that 8,000 is simply every single person who has recently flown back from China. The vast majority of those people are not going to have coronavirus. And there certainly is a reason to say that now is not the time to be testing every single one of those people, especially because my understanding is we still don't know exactly when the right time to test people is. There sort of is a window of when people are going to test positive for it, and they're still kind of doing studies to figure out exactly when that appropriate time is. So in the meantime, it's not really logical to test every single one of those people. But that being said, now that we have this community case, presumably there is talk that we really need to be doing surveillance of this disease and not just diagnosing individuals, but sort of more widespread testing to just figure out if there are cases in the community that we're not catching. President Trump had a news conference on Wednesday and said that we as a country are very, very ready for something like this. He said that Vice President Mike Pence is going to lead the administration's response. There's like a COVID-19 task force that they're setting up so they can keep seeing what's going on. There is a lot of hysteria around this. Rightly so, maybe overblown. It may be a, it's maybe a little bit of both. It is spreading all over parts of the world. But help us calm down a little bit about this. The COVID-19, from my understanding, about 80% of people who do contract it, it is mild symptoms. It's not that bad. And it's a lot fewer instances where people really do get very sick and die from this. That's all correct. And, you know, you raised a really important point, which is it's very hard to strike that balance between telling people this is something you should be aware of and concerned about, but it's also not something you should be panicking about. And I think you focused on the 80% are mild, and that's really important for people to remember, and that's important to note. I think the concern and the reason why we want to follow this is because if this thing were to explode like it has in China, which presumably it could, it obviously has that capability, this virus does. Yeah, 80% of people are probably going to be fine, but 20% of a large denominator of a large population of sick people would be a pretty hefty strain on our health systems. And the fatality rate right now is about 2%, and we'd rather not have that 2% die. So if we can keep it from getting in here, from getting traction, from spreading widely, that's where these really aggressive public health efforts are coming from.
it's tough to really sift through all of this. Obviously, the media is going crazy with it because it is new, right? The novel coronavirus, that's what it's called. And people are very unfamiliar with it, and they're worried that it could be much worse. But as I said, compared to other ones like SARS and MERS, it's not necessarily that bad just yet. And we don't know much about this. There's a lot yet to be done. I know there's already been some possible vaccines submitted for testing and trials. You know, I mean, they're saying like a year to a year and yeah. a half for, for a vaccine. Yeah. Exactly. And that's tough for a lot of people to really understand. So there's just a lot that people have to digest with all of this. It's true. It's a lot of information. And it's hard for people to see that, you know, we're quarantining people at Air Force bases and we're asking 8,000 people in California alone to isolate at home. I mean, we're taking these really aggressive public health stances and at the same time keep saying, oh, but the risk is low. (laughs) I mean, I think that it is a hard thing. And I mean, both of those messages are correct. I mean, all of that is true, but it's hard for people to grasp what to do with that information. And I get that. I think that we just kind of have to keep putting it out there. I spoke to a local congressman out here in Riverside county close to Los Angeles, where I'm at, in his district was where the first evacuees came from Wuhan, China. And people were saying, well, I don't know if this can travel through the air. It's pretty windy out here. You know, they were just, <laughs> they were just concerned that it could travel in that sense. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So the last question I just have on all this, the president had requested $2.5 billion to help with a federal response to this. I know the CDC says they're on top of this. Is there any reason why we shouldn't trust that they are on top of this? Because lawmakers are asking or saying, you know, we need more money to throw at this. And local cities are issuing declarations of emergency so that they can get more funding for this. Is the response at the right level right now? I think so. It's hard to say, you know, what the right level is, that this thing is constantly shifting. It seems to me that they're kind of striking the right attack on this. I will say the one thing, and Gavin Newsom at the press conference this morning, he also said that the money is one thing he's not worried about, that they have money, they're going to pour whatever money they need into this, that that's not a concern. I think one thing that I know is the case is local public health departments at the county level are really responsible for a lot of the work of monitoring these cases in the community, of identifying them, doing the kind of case tracking. And the CDC is weighing in, other people are helping. But the counties, a lot of them are very small. They don't have really large staffs, and a lot of them don't have a big staff for doing this kind of work. And I think that they're prepared to do that on sort of emergency basis. They can, you know, come in and do these things for weeks at a time. But if this thing really takes off for long periods of time, you know, I think that's one of the big questions people have is, do we have the public health infrastructure, especially at the local level, to keep on top of this thing if it goes on for months at a time? Aaron Alday, health writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. A big story on the political side. Democrats had their 10th debate earlier this week, and it was the last one before voting in South Carolina and on Super Tuesday just a few days later. And the debate was a mess. The candidates were feeling a sense of urgency, but they were talking over each other. There were attacks that were both personal and on policy, and the moderators just quickly lost control. Bernie Sanders was facing heat as the frontrunner, but largely came out unscathed. Mike Bloomberg fared better in a second debate, but he still had a lot of ground to make up. To dissect what happened at the latest Democratic debate, we spoke to Maya King. She's a 2020 fellow at Politico. I don't want to, you know, make a, a, a sweeping accusation of the folks at CBS, but it, it wasn't good. You know, it was kind of a mess. I think that's the word that everyone is using, and it lacked a lot of organization. People watch debates to learn something new about the candidates, to find a way to get closer to their decision on who they'd like to vote for. And moderation is a big part of that in that it gives, you know, the candidates an opportunity to actually have some organization 
and, and be able to say something new. But after last night, given the questions and the time and the way that the moderators were just, you know, unable to gain control over the field, I didn't see us really learning anything new. Right. It made the candidates, it forced them to lean on a lot of the things that they already say in their stump speeches. And when they weren't speaking, they were yelling over each other. And, you know, you're not able to understand anything there. I agree completely. I mean, even the questions, as you mentioned, there was a lot of stuff happening in the news recently. Coronavirus, obviously a big one. And they did get to it. But, you know, in the second half of the debate, that could have been a front runner question right there. Things about the president and uh, his interactions with the Justice Department. There was a lot of opportunity for some major top headline news questions, and they just didn't get to it or gave it little play. And they asked questions. And I, I know they always do these personal questions, but what's your biggest misconception and your personal motto? I mean, we've been dealing with these candidates for so long now, besides Mike Bloomberg. Let's get to some issues. Let's have something substantive. And that was a tough one to get over. Let's move on to Bernie Sanders. He is the front runner right now. Joe Biden is polling better in South Carolina. He hopes to have a really good showing there. But Bernie Sanders was fielding all of the attacks throughout the night. You know, you're right to say that South Carolina is Biden territory. He still maintains that it is, though several reports have come out uh, suggesting that perhaps his support in the state is not as strong as he thought. And we also know that Sanders is trying to take away just sort of blow through the firewall that we've been talking about for months now that Biden does have in the state. And so, yeah, Sanders was definitely fielding a lot of critique, a lot of criticism. He even said it himself at one point in the debate. I'm hearing my name mentioned a lot tonight, (laughs) Uh, but he got the front runner treatment, you know, and that's something that everybody on that stage has experienced at least once now, almost a year into this thing. He was getting a lot of attacks. I don't think anybody really took him down Bernie Sanders has this kind of air about him, almost like the president. They call him Teflon Don because nothing really sticks to him. And I think Bernie Sanders has a little bit of that where they'll attack him, he'll redirect, and once again, he'll go back into things that he's talked about many times. Bernie Sanders has that consistency with him at least, but he was getting a lot of heat for things that he said about Cuba and Fidel Castro saying they did some good stuff with regards to education and really everybody on the stage turned on him on that one said, you know, how could you say that? That's, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Even Joe Biden, when they were mentioning former President Obama, saying that you guys are on complete opposite sides of this whole thing. And it dovetails right with, you know, this argument that has been standing among moderates for many months and the biggest critique of Sanders, which is if we elect a democratic socialist, not only does that decrease our down ballot, you know, potential and the opportunity to maintain the House and take the Senate, it also creates, you know, a serious, perhaps a disaster scenario for Democrats where you imagine um, the, the spoils of socialism in countries like Cuba or even in Venezuela. And Republicans will be able to point to these regimes and say, this is what Sanders is trying to offer to you. This is what a Sanders administration looks like. See how he cozies up to Fidel Castro. It's almost like it writes itself. Right. And, it's, and I think that's why the rest of the field was so quick to jump down his throat about that, because that might be something worth saying. Um, you know, we know that former President Obama had similar sentiments in saying that some of Castro's um, policies actually did help the people of Cuba. But with the stakes being so high in this Democratic primary, just made a lot of people upset that Sanders in this front runner position would would just dig his heels a little bit further into this socialist ideal, I suppose. 
How do you think Joe Biden did? Obviously, South Carolina is going to be big for him. And then going into Super Tuesday, he needs that momentum. I thought he did okay, but performance was uneven at best, it still seems like. I think he actually had one of the strongest performances on a debate stage that he's had thus far. A lot of the people who I spoke with who are familiar with Biden's style and with his campaign were saying this was the Biden that we've been waiting for for months now. Um, The fact that he was able to strongly articulate himself and sort of carry on a train of thought a little bit further. This was the Uncle Joe, if you will, that a number of people, a lot of his supporters knew that they had seen but weren't seeing it on the debate stage before. And of course, there's no denying that he was particularly comfortable in South Carolina because that's where he has his strongest base of support. It's where he's well-received always, and it's where he expects to win. And it was sort of peppered now by the Clyburn endorsement that we saw this morning. Um, That's one of the most powerful players, of course, in South Carolina, not to mention the most powerful black man in, in Congress. So you really can't deny that that's going to help him tremendously on Saturday. I've reported before that there were cracks in Biden's firewall and that his support among African-Americans in South Carolina was slipping. And I still stand by that reporting, though now that we have this Clyburn endorsement, I imagine it shored up a few of his, if not several, of his more reluctant black supporters who were just waiting for the moment that we saw last night, which was a stronger performance from him on the debate stage. We've seen this uneven uh, thing for Joe Biden happening for a while now, and, and Tom Steyer specifically was doing a lot of advertising in South Carolina. So yeah, so there were some cracks for sure. And Joe Biden needs a big win there to get that momentum going in a Super Tuesday. What do we make of Michael Bloomberg? Uh, obviously, it wasn't the kind of train wreck that it was the first time out, but I don't know how much better he might have done in this debate. Uh, still getting a lot of heat from uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders as well. Yeah. And the thing about Bloomberg is there's never any shortage of things to say about about him as a former Republican, as a mayor who was able to change policies and and give himself a a third term as someone who's held women under non-disclosure agreements. Of course, the terms of those were still not totally, you know, we don't know the entire story yet, but it's still something worth asking questions about. Uh, There's stop and frisk. There's his surveillance of uh, Muslim American communities in New York. Like there's a lot of things that just keep tumbling and tumbling out about Bloomberg that just give his opponents plenty of fodder. And it has boosted Warren's numbers tremendously for her to continue to go after him. So the fire that he's taking, I don't think it's going anywhere. I agree that he did have a stronger performance because he was ready for what was coming, I think, more so last night than last week. But as far as like the question of what to make of him, I really don't know. I mean, it's so interesting and borderline bizarre to to see the way that he spent money and built this thing just totally from the ground up. But no one can quite lay a finger on him other than what he tells us in his ad messaging. Yeah, I mean, he's not even a player in South Carolina. He's not on the ballot there. So his big play and, uh, you know, really everybody's big play is on Super Tuesday, which happens just a few days after the South Carolina primary. Everybody's really holding out for there. There's, uh, you know, a ton of states voting. And I'm hoping the landscape changes after that. Then we'll have some clearer front runners. Bernie Sanders wins a lot of delegates there. It's going to be trouble for the other candidates. Joe Biden has this opportunity to gain some momentum. And really what you saw, maybe through all of the arguing and talking over each other, was this revitalized sense of urgency that everybody has leading up to Super Tuesday. Maya King, 2020 fellow at Politico. 
Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.